We, as always, are thankful that God has blessed us with a Sunday morning, that we are able to come together to offer our worship unto Him. And certainly today, we're thankful for our membership, our visitors, and every person who's present today. It's always our desire, of course, that our prayers, our singing, the other attributes of our service are not only those things that encourage us, which they will if we will participate as God tells us, but they'll magnify His name, glorify His cause. And so today, we're honored to be able to open a section of His Word and reflect on it for the next few moments. What are you doing? That's the title I've given to the lesson this morning, based at least in part on that lesson text read a moment ago from the 119th Psalm. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes. As the psalmist made that statement, what a beautiful statement it is. That word inclined carries the thought of deliberate and willful direction. He had made a choice and he was going to carry that out and do that in a way, of course, that was in harmony with the will of God. This opening slide will be one that begins to move us in that direction to make application of that very sentence and idea in our discussion today. I think we'd all readily say that the Bible offers statements of encouragement to us and sometimes statements of great challenge. Things I'm doing wrong that I need to change or maybe things that you are doing wrong and things that need to be changed or on other occasions things I'm failing to do and I need to make changes. As we each read the Word of God, we realize He tells us these things for our good. He tells them because you and I need to make those changes we want to go to heaven. And we know that what He says is the thing that will allow us to be blessedly able to enter that place. You'll notice on that slide before you, Jesus came and He specifically said, I came to do the will of Him that sent me. John 6, verse 38. In John 4, verse 34, He also affirmed, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. And later on the cross in John 19, 30, He could honestly say, It is finished. He had done that which was the Father's will. Now I realize in a general way, you and I could ask this question, Am I doing the Father's will? Are you doing the Father's will? Jesus said He was, and he could say that that always pleased the Father. As you and I make those applications today, let's revisit the lesson text. I have inclined mine heart to keep thy statutes. I'd like this lesson to be a rather personal one for each of us. When it said, I have inclined my heart, Randy Bybee, are you doing this? And you put your name in the sentence. Have I inclined mine heart to keep the statutes of God? And we're going to just make several applications. And as we do it, let's lay a foundation, a bedrock that begins like this. You and I have perhaps known and recognized the fact that there has been a rather notable discussion, even a controversy in the mind of some at least, for probably 500 years now about faith and works. Some say it's faith, some say it's works, and the two can never mesh or meet. But yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, of course, each one has a rightful and an integral part in the carrying out of God's will for your life and mine. Let's develop the thought like this. 
Aren't we taught in Ephesians 2 8 that by grace are you saved through faith? And that not of works, lest any man should boast. And right there is the place where some individuals like John Calvin and others have camped. And they've said, well, doesn't that exclude then works? Well, of course not. Couldn't you and I be as blunt as to say it like this? Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2, verses 17 and following. But works without faith is meaningless, isn't it? One has to be prompted by the realization of the needfulness of each one of these. And the Bible describes it like this. You and I demonstrate our faith. We provide evidence for it as we engage in those works that God has told us to do. In fact, we joyfully do these things, or at least we should. We delight in them. The psalmist again said, I have inclined mine heart. I have turned the direction of my thinking. I've moved in the direction of appreciation relative to the statutes and will of God. For that reason, look at that next thought. Drawn directly from Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like you to ponder with me a moment. So what is the presentation of faith in that chapter? One by one, these great individuals from the days of Abel onward. By faith, Abel did something. By faith, Noah did something. By faith, Moses did something. And you and I could devote the entirety of this lesson and many that follow in the exposition of faith. Faith meant that Noah built an ark. He did so with the explicit dimensions that God gave him, highlighting the nature and character of every detail. Why did he do this? Because God told him to. Faith, in fact, was an action-oriented thing, wasn't it? And today it's no different. The Bible never upholds the fact of faith only being something mental, something that merely I give assent to. That, that isn't the biblical definition of faith. For that reason, let's finish that slide like this. Might you and I keep in mind that on occasion in the Word of God, there were individuals who it says had belief but were not pleasing to God. Belief alone will not be sufficient. In John 12, verses 41 and 42, there were individuals then who the text says they believed, but they were, in fact, unwilling to confess Jesus. So note they did believe. But that belief didn't, in fact, emanate into a life devoted in fullness to that which the Lord had desired and commanded of them. And could we not be as specific to say this? The devil believes... In, John, in James 2.19, the devil and his host of demons, they believe in Jesus. They know who He is and they know what the church is, but they'll never be saved. Belief alone, again, is not a sufficient thing. With that in mind, let's make a few applications then to you and to me today. Things that can help you and I as we seek to be pleasing to God. Have you and I inclined our heart to the commandments of God? Well, these next appreciations will begin to ask us some questions. And one by one, I'm asking myself these as much as I'm encouraging you to ask them of yourself. It's fair to say that if you and I as a Christian aren't doing anything, are we really headed to heaven? Are we really pleasing in His sight? And so question number one, for, for, for every one of us, 
do you study the Bible? Now remember, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. And aren't we also affirmed throughout the nature of the Word of God how central it must be in determining how we think, how we view things, our perspective on life? I've asked you in that light to consider that text in 2 Peter 3 verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Do you study the Bible? Or does it gather dust week after week, month after month? Now that's a question that I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. But it's a question that every one of us must, at least in earnestness, answer now because we certainly don't want to arrive at the day of judgment and find that we were misdirected or that we had failed. The second point on that idea is consider how the Word of God is presented to you and to me. I've asked you to reflect on Psalm 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. May I ask, what is the lamp to your feet? Do you turn to news broadcasts or magazines? Do you find that kind of thing in the advice and counsel of others? And I'm not always discounting the advice or counsel of others, but ultimately, the guiding lamp of life must be the Word of God. Do you and I give lip service to that, or do we really study it? There's going to come a day when this book is going to be opened and I'm going to be judged by the things it says. I'd certainly prefer to know now what it says rather than find it out then. I would use that as at least one encouragement for Bible study classes. Our elders have chosen to have classes again at 9.30 on Sunday morning, 7 o'clock Wednesday night. At the very least... I need to always, if it is at all possible, to be present at those services so that I can study the greatest book of all time, learn from it, improve my life, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I study the Bible? Do you? If I'm not studying the Bible, have I really inclined my heart to the statutes of God? That's a fair question, isn't it? The answer would seem rather obviously to be no. One last thing in that would be that impressive verse that Paul told Timothy. Now in 2 Timothy 2.15, as Paul addressed those comments, it was to him that he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That opening word, study, that literally means to give diligence. But it's the latter part of that verse that highlights an impressive requirement rightly dividing. God expects you and me to rightly divide this book. We live in a time and in a circumstance in which so very many make various and sundry distinctive statements about it. And quite often they're completely wrong. You and I have got to know what's wrong about it. And we've got to know that this book is always the right thing. What about the second thing? What else could I personally ask of myself as well as yourself? Do you pray often? Do you? Do I? Or do you allow a number of days to pass without ever a word of prayer? 
there's one message of any other that's certainly clear from the gospel accounts, especially the book of Luke, highlighting the fact that that person devoted and certainly dedicated to the service of God will be an individual often in prayer. You can see on those scripture references I've asked you to notice that as the New Testament presents it, this matter in prayer does give you and me a rather strong test. How close is my connection to God? After all, we like to talk to the people we're close to. If we don't ever talk to God, how close are we to Him? If we don't ever enter into that dialogue by way of prayer with Him, how close am I to Him, really? Well, may I suggest Paul admonished the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing to always have the opportunity, at least the appreciation, maybe more than once a day, to approach our Heavenly Father, laying our concerns and cares on Him, but maybe beseeching Him for wisdom that we know how to handle the situations we face. Do you pray often? I'd like to suggest that any of us will never have the closeness to God that we should if that prayer life is not as strong as it ought to be. Along that line, you might note this. Who should we pray for in those times? Well, the Bible, of course, has so many particulars. We can pray for those we love, our family members, but we're even admonished to pray for kings, for rulers, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. And so, in essence, we have so many subjects for which we can pray. But certainly prayer is a critical thing in reminding us that's one way that we can know our heart is inclined to the things of God. One last thought on that slide. Aren't you so beautifully impressed at how impressive the thought of that prayer can be? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, we are told, avails much. James 5.16 As you keep all that in mind, we've been challenged, every one of us, to pray, to be Bible students, the list goes on. How about number three? What else can you and I consider? Number three, do you attend the services as you should? And by that I mean at every time health or other things will permit you. Do you really? Now that means worship services, Bible studies, that would be the gospel meetings that we, that we hold, do I attend because this is the place where God's Word is proclaimed and this is the place wherein those who love the Lord assemble and gather and worship Him and it's the place wherein the things that are good are upheld. Wouldn't each of us be quick to say it would certainly be a good thing to attend all the services. Whether I do or not, surely everybody would agree it's good. But James 4.17 says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it's sin. And therefore, if I know it's good to be there and I'm not there, I've just committed a sin. And I'd like to suggest it's just more than one. You have sinned because you failed to worship and honor God. You've sinned by failing to encourage the others who are there. You have sinned in that you've set a bad example. And the list could go many times over. But surely, if our interest is to draw close unto God, we'd like to be near where those people are who are trying to do that. 
Look at some of these verses. In Matthew 6, 21, didn't Jesus say, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure or mine is not attached to the things of eternity, then we may well be somewhere else. But doesn't that mean that on the day of judgment we're going to come up short? We're going to come up lacking, regretful if you please. We're taught in Hebrews 10.25 that as we exhort and provoke one another to love and good works, don't forsake the assembly. Now some had already developed a habit of doing that in the day of the book of Hebrews because he says, as some are or as the manner of some is. That word manner means habit. There were some people in that day and time who had developed a habit of missing the services. Does that characterize you? Be honest. Does that characterize you? Because he said that's a sin and they're going to in fact enter judgment. And the next verse says they're going to trample underfoot the Son of God because of what they've done. May you and I not make that mistake. But as we incline our heart to the things of God, may we always be present if we can be at those services. One last thing is that verse in 1 Peter 2.17. Isn't it true there that the admonishment is given? To love the brotherhood. If you and I love the brotherhood, where else will we be? We'll be where the brotherhood's assembling. We'll be where those individuals are gathering. What about question four? Is my heart inclined unto God? Do you invite non-Christians to come and be with us at any of the services? Now the Christian religion is of course one that we desire for others to know the blessings and the rewards that we enjoy. Our sins are forgiven. We're journeying to heaven. We're told we have to love people. Do we want them to know this great joy? Jesus specifically said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Do you or I ever invite others to attend the services? Now, in, in a way, that's a simple thing we can do to maybe introduce them to the truth of God, to allow them to understand what takes place here. An initial opportunity to introduce them to perhaps the one church they've never known anything about. Now, that invitation, I've used some of these verses. We just noted Mark's version in Mark 16. Matthew's version. Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28, There Matthew for all of us wrote the following, All power given unto me in heaven and in earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now we know that inviting will be at least perhaps an initial step that will opportune for us later a time to actually have a Bible study to teach them. But surely what a simple thing it can be. You know, we have a Bible study every Wednesday night. I tell you what, I'd, I'd love it if you'd come. I'll even come pick you up. You know, Sunday morning, we have Bible study at 9.30 and worship following at 10.30. You know, I'll tell you what, I'd love for you to come and we'll go out and have lunch after that worship service is complete. At least the invitation is extended. The person may not take you up on it, but if you offer enough times, they eventually might. That invitation maybe leads me to Jude verse 23. You know, we're admonished, aren't we, to snatch them out of the fire. 
You and I are surrounded every day by people who are journeying straight to hell. They aren't saved. They're not members of the church. Their sins have never been forgiven. They apparently have no interest whatsoever in Jesus Christ. Maybe an invitation could at least be an opportunity to encourage them to think about an avenue in life they have to this point never pursued. Maybe it will jar into their thinking. Well, you know, my parents a long time ago, they were faithful in attendance and I just somehow got out of the habit. Maybe they'll come. That invitation, though, could at least lead me to say this. At the very least, it would provide for them a recognition that there is a foundation to your life and mine, and that foundation is Jesus Christ, and we just want them to come to know it too. What about number five? What are you doing? Do you talk with others about Jesus and the Bible? When those opportunities are presented... And it's for sure those can be moments of difficulty and moments of uncertainty and even moments of challenge. But do you and I speak about the things of Jesus and the things of truth? Let's develop some of those thoughts like this. As you give thought to the early Christians, that is to say the early chapters in the book of Acts, what impression do we get? We know about the day of Pentecost... Roughly 3,000 were baptized and were added to the church that day, Acts 2, verses 41 and 47. But yet as the chapters quickly pass by, we find in Acts 5, 42 that daily they went from house to house. In Acts 8, verse number 4, it says that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the Word. That which motivated them and which was the critical avenue in life was, of course, Jesus Christ and His gospel message. Do you and I ever speak about Him? Do you and I live near, work with, or in other ways associate with people and they never even know you're a member of the church? You know, that's not so good if, if that happens. At the very least, there ought to be distinctions in the way we live and the kind of language we use and the nature of the kind of person we are and what we stand up for. But not only that, when the opportunity arises, that'd be a good time for that invitation to a Bible study, perhaps to come to church services with me. And hopefully in time, that could lead to an opportunity. Would you like to study the Bible with me? And just open the Word of God and maybe give consideration to some simple elements of the one church, the plan of salvation, the nature of God's plan as it's been revealed. What are you doing? What am I doing? It is something to consider, isn't it? One last thing on that. Didn't Jesus, in fact, speak rather directly to us? In Romans 7 verse 4, "...my will is that you bear much fruit." Are you and I then bearing fruit in the light of not only encouragement to fellow Christians, but with the hope of maybe bringing other people to Jesus? Surely that statement that I've asked you to consider in 1 Peter 3 verse 15 reminds every one of us, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. I suppose we each can then see as we're asked these individual questions by the Word of God itself, it brings us to number six. What are you doing? Do you edify your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ?
May I ask it this way, if every other Christian was like me, would the church be stronger than it now is or would it be weaker than it now is? That's a good question. Do I encourage, uplift, and minister an attribute of encouragement to others or am I more a stumbling block? Do I bring frowns to faces or smiles to faces? There's something to seriously consider about the nature of this family of God that that God has orchestrated, the church. This question might lead us to this verse. In Hebrews 10, again, verse 24. I've always been impressed, and perhaps you have been as well, that the text says to provoke one another to love and good works. Quite often, we use that word provoke in the interest of provoking something to evil or provoking something to what's bad. But that verse uses it good. Do you and I stir other people up to love and good works? That's a great question. Are my fellow brothers and sisters motivated on their journey to heaven by me? Or am I making their journey more difficult? Am I making stumbling blocks that they have to try to overcome? If it's the latter, I need to repent. And I need to change for my attitude, my perspective, and my actions are not becoming as they ought to be. Now, I might say in this regard, there certainly are occasions when a brother or sister will exhibit words of challenge and even discipline. You know, I saw you somewhere in town, a brother might say to a fellow brother, and you know, you ought not be there. That place is not wholesome to your attitude. It's not wholesome to your influence. And in fact, You sin by being there. Now, when a brother says that to a brother, that's not something to be looked upon lightly. In fact, that was stated in love. This brother wants the other to journey to heaven. And by seeing that, that was a very kind and loving statement that was made. So this kind of statement, that would be included in edification. May I say, with regard to that particular point, these questions, one by one, bring us to question number seven. We have each asked ourselves these. How about this one? Do you seek to restore the erring? Now, by the word erring, I, of course, have in mind there are individuals who once were faithful but have chosen to no longer be. They have begun to live in a way they ought not, to make choices they ought not, to move in a direction they ought not, to forfeit the salvation that they once had known. Maybe you or I know of individuals, perhaps a number like this. Do you seek to restore the erring? You know, one of the things that the New Testament describes in such a powerful way is the love that exists in the Lord's family, in His church. So that if a family member begins to go off in a direction that's bad, the others in love won't just let him keep going that way. They will exert effort to try to bring him back. Now, he may listen, he may not, but at least the church, and at least he knows that the church loves him enough to go after him. Isn't it true? In a a very simple way, that's the main idea behind the whole idea of withdrawing fellowship. When someone proceeds along that path to that extent that they won't repent of the sins in their life, we are going to make a statement, the church will say. We don't approve or tolerate this. And Jesus commands that we have no fellowship with you. We're going to withdraw our fellowship. 
with the intent that you will appreciate the severity and the foolishness of that choice that you're currently making and that you will come back to the place that God wants you to be and we want you to be. Now that's the idea behind it. That fellowship, that withdrawing of fellowship, as you and I see here, could you and I not say it like this? When a Christian chooses to leave that style of life, according to the Bible, that individual is in the worst possible condition of any human being on this planet. I say that because of this. They once had known the truth and were saved, and now they've turned their back on it. I say it that way because that's what Peter said. The latter end is worse than the beginning. Now, he was lost before he ever obeyed the gospel, but Peter says now he's worse off than he was then. That must mean that his condition in regard to the day of judgment, his condition in regard to the fiery pits of hell that he shall receive, are more severe, more intense than he would have received otherwise. A person that's a Christian and chooses to forsake it, to apostatize from it, that person's in the worst possible condition. No wonder we read in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, if any of you do err from the faith, then you seek to restore that one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Do you and I seek to restore the erring? In James 5 verses 19 and 20, it is there said that if you do that, you save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. That's a great thought, isn't it? At this point, what about question number eight? Do you and I minister to the needy? The world has a lot of people hurting in it. There are people hurting for a variety of reasons. Some perhaps because they have too little food. Maybe others, the shelter is not available or at least not sufficient. For others, maybe it's clothing. For others, maybe it's difficulty surrounding health problems. That list could go on and on. But isn't it interesting what Jesus said in Matthew 25? I'd like to ask you to listen as I read a somewhat lengthy section of that chapter, but you know it well. The Lord gave us a picture of the judgment. In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14, Jesus made these statements. Remember, He's just a few hours before the crucifixion, and in answer to the question that was asked in Matthew 24, 3, He answered like this, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, beginning in verse 31, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a sheep divideth, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on the right, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? 
When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. The chapter continues because he addresses those on the left and says, The very things that they had done you didn't do. You didn't provide food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty. You didn't visit those in prison or sick. May we ask at this point, the Lord said this is attached to the judgment. So what about me? And what about you? What about those hungry and those thirsty and those in prison and those that are sick and those that are destitute in a variety of ways? Apparently on that day of judgment... One of the things that shall be reckoned using that book of life and the things concerning the Word of God shall be, did I minister to the needy? Did you do it? One by one, these questions have challenged all of us in a very direct way. We want to go to heaven. What have you been doing and what have I been doing? Let's close our lesson with this final slide. When you and I appreciate the teaching of the New Testament, we see, for example, the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. And would you be impressed, that congregation was such that they had a keen knowledge of the truth of God. They had tried apostles, I should say individuals who claimed to be apostles but were false, and they detected it. They had enough knowledge to know that. That degree of knowledge wasn't enough to completely satisfy Jesus, for He said, I've got somewhat against you. You've left your first love. Knowledge alone, apparently, when it isn't combined with application of it, is not pleasing to God. The church at Laodicea, something similar. They were, weren't hot, they weren't cold. Notice He didn't tell them they didn't know a lot. He didn't tell them that you don't have enough Bible knowledge, just they hadn't applied it. May I say, we at the Pippin Church, and that begins with every one of us individually, what are you doing? Am I applying the things of the Bible? In every one of these ways we've learned, do I study it? Do I pray? Do I engage in these other activities? May every one of us, if we aren't, develop the capability and strive to begin to do it because we want to please Jesus. We want to make Him happy, and we want Him to be pleased with us. As we close this lesson this morning, I hope we've each been admonished and encouraged to live in a way to please King Jesus. If there'd be anybody in this audience who would need to come forward today, we want you to know that we implore you to do it. Jesus wants you to do it. I know it could be a moment of anxiety, but I want you to know that this group of people would surround you with arms of love and encouragement. And even more than that, Jesus would smile on you with a degree of pleasure in light of the decision you will have made. As an alien sinner, you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is in fact the very one who was the Son of God and died on the cross. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If today we could help you in that way, how wonderful it would be. 
If you, however, have become a Christian, and maybe in light of a lesson like this one, maybe you've come to realize there are deficits in your life. I hadn't been doing that, and I hadn't even been thinking about doing it. Well, I want you to know that we would pray for encouragement, and we would pray that any sins in your life would be forgiven. As long as you repent them, repent of them and confess them, He's promised He'll forgive. Today, if we could be of help to anybody in these ways, we want to be helpful to you, and we want to encourage you, and we want to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.